Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet y'all. Um, it's a part of y'all's life. Uh, here at RUF, uh, we are an organization that doesn't exist for itself, but we exist for the campus and for you all and for to be a resource for you for the gospel. Um, so that's our hope. That's what I want to do with my life. That's what Kate wants to do with her life. Um, and so if we can do that anyway, please. <laughs> So if you're interested, uh, after this, uh, we're going to do probably a, a five-minute break, somewhere around there, and then we'll do probably a 15, 20-minute Q&A afterwards. So in that five minutes, if you need to go or you need to go to Davis or whatever, you're welcome to get up and go. But after that, uh, I'll stand up here and I'll have a Google Voice number you can text in questions with, and I'll answer stuff from uh, the past couple weeks we've gone through or any other questions you have on kind of dating, marriage, relationships, that kind of stuff. Um, so, that kind of said, uh, I also want to say this, that um, here at IUF, uh, you know, I take a lot of this stuff that I'm, I'm teaching on and preaching on from books and from life resources and things like that, uh, but I also listen to other people's sermons and kind of try to piece together the wisdom of their pastors who have a broader experience than I do. And so I just want to give credit where credit's due, and a lot of this sermon came from a guy named Les Newsom, who's another campus minister in Old Miss for a long time. Uh, He's a very gifted preacher, very good communicator, and uh, he's someone that's really impacted me personally in a lot of ways and also impacted his sermon. So if originality and pure originality is what you're looking for, or you may not have been the place for you tonight, but that's what we got. <laughs> so that said, uh, let me read Genesis 3 uh, for us right here, and we'll get started. We're in uh, the same passage we were in last week. Here we go, Genesis 3, the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and cool the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's God's word. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, as we come and crush your word, but we know that we need uh, eyes to see. And those eyes aren't from ourselves. Or that we need ears to hear, and those ears aren't from us either. But Lord, that we need your grace to understand and perceive your words, to understand and perceive your actions in the world. Lord, help us now with that. Uh, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, our rock and our Amen. 
So we began last week uh, talking about what's wrong with our relationships. And Genesis 3 is where we were. It, it simply documents for us the cosmic car wreck of the fall of man. The fall is fundamentally a relational fall that impacts all the other aspects of our lives. And the effects of this go especially into our relationships. So we began to survey at least some of the effects of the fall. And last week we covered self-centeredness, insecurity, and hiding or avoidance. But tonight we're looking at how sin brings us out into rebellion, into blame shifting, and authority. Rebellion, blame shifting, and authority. Those are the things I want to talk about tonight. So first off, let's look at rebellion. The Bible's claim is that since Adam and Eve, people have hardwired in their psychological and social DNA to delight in doing something for no other reason than it's wrong. They just like to rebel. And Adam and Eve set up that pattern, but people have been playing out in many, many different ways for a very long time on all kinds of different scales. And personally, I think that one of the most interesting ways this comes out is in the stories that we tell ourselves. I think it's something that your generation is more comfortable with than our parents or our grandparents. But think about the stories that you're binging on on Netflix. Like Gossip Girl. I haven't watched it myself, but I hear that a lot of it... <laughs> yeah, that's right. On authority. <laughs> but, I, but a lot of it is about kind of a friend group where people are stabbing each other in the back, right? Breaking Bad. Not experienced that kind of thing myself, but... <laughs> I'm not a meth dealer. Not. <laughs> Huge show. Huge show. And Mad Max, big blockbuster movie of the summer, all really important big films, big stories that we're watching, binging, soaking up right now. I saw an article recently that said that Batman is a more popular superhero now than Superman. Why is that? Because he's the Dark Knight. He's grim. He's gritty. Superman is light and airy and good. But we want authenticity. We want reality. I want to see what the world is really like. When I see war, I want real war. When I see somebody get hit, I want to see a real hit. When I see a friend group that's messed up or petty, I want to see real pettiness, real jealousy, real brokenness. Look, old TV shows like Leave it to Beaver like I Love Lucy, they just don't feel like they're tapping the reality of what it's like to be a person that lives in a world of death and divorce and just plain old-fashioned petty gossip, that those things are present. Like, and we don't want those kind of stories. Like, we love the gritty stories because they're taking into account the presence of rebellion and sin in all of our lives. And for some of those, it's a large like, post-apocalyptic scale, and some of it's a small coming-of-age friend group, Right? But people have wondered for a long time, as they've told these stories, as they've lived these stories, why is it, why is it that when I get really honest with myself, that I find that the central part of me is turned not towards doing good for the sake of goodness, but doing bad for the sake of badness? Like, people have wrestled with that. And somebody who really wrestled with this was a man named uh, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name. He lived 1,500 years ago in Africa. And he wrote this thing called the Confessions, which is really his memoirs. And he talks in this about being a teenager and what it was like to be a teenager. And he says one of the very first stories about himself is this. He stole pears with his friends just to steal them. And here's a quote from this. He says, there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit, tempting neither for color nor for taste. These are bad pears. But to shake and rob this, some lewd young fellows of us went late one night, and we took huge loads of these pears, not for our eating, 
but to fling to the very hogs, having only tasted them. And this, but to do what we liked only because it, and listen for this, was bad. Fair were those pears, but we didn't get, but we got them for my wretched soul's desire. For I had better, and those that I gathered only that I would steal them. For when I gathered, I flung them away, my only feast therein being, listen for it, my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. For if any of those pears came within my mouth, what sweetened them was the sin. That's Augustine, 1,500 years ago, saying we're hardwired for rebellion. Now, the Bible is just not that complimentary to your soul. Like, even though mankind was made good because of the fall here, we're now not basically good. You are not a core of goodness wrapped in maladjustment and badness. But the Bible actually says it's the other way around. That you're a core of badness that sometimes does things that look good from the outside in order to further your own aims. So how does this come out in our relationships? This, I think this way. For some of us, there's a, just a store of disappointment for us when you discover that what you refer to as your sex drive on the other end of marriage is not anything more than your desire to do something because it was dangerous or dirty or wrong. You'll find that you love sneaking around and fooling around simply because it was wrong. And you'll get into marriage, and you and your spouse will suddenly wonder, like, why was it prior to marriage we could not keep our hands off each other? But suddenly you'll get married, and you'll ask ourselves, where's the spark? Where did that go? It's like what the old comedian used to say, that marriage is to sex what rain is to a baseball game. It's supposed to be a joke. Um, but, <laughs> but why is that? <laughs> yeah. A comedian said that. Uh, <laughs> the truth of the matter is, though, is that what we've, a lot of us have been chalking up to our sex drive, the Bible says that you did it because you loved it because it was wrong. And the moment that it wasn't wrong anymore, it lost its potency in life. Guys, for a lot of us, your temptation will be to look for sexual involvement in other places either in porn or having an affair. The temptation will offer itself as a thrill because it's bad. And you'll celebrate how wonderful it feels because it's bad. And I guarantee you, if you could interview some of the people who got entangled in the Ashley Madison website debacle, I wonder how many would say, oh, that was me. Like, it's not my spouse, they were great, it's not my marriage, that was fun. But it's me, and I did it, and I loved it because it was dirty, and it was secret. Some of you will find yourselves putting your girlfriend or your spouse to, and pressuring them to do things that you saw in porn and make her increasingly uncomfortable because it's bad. And listen to me when I say this, that it'll never be enough. It'll just never be enough. Because the cruelties of rebellion is it pretends to offer you satisfaction or to bring you something like to the joy that you were made to experience, but it cannot that the only thing that it actually offers you is that you become more and more entangled in your rebellion. And I know that this sounds crazy because it is. But until you acknowledge that there's a part of you that loves this and wants it, that you will not get any, any better. You will only become more secretive. Things in your life will only get pushed further to the corners or down up under the rug. It will only become more and more of a problem. So that's rebellion. Let's talk about blame shifting here. Look at verses 11 through 13. 
Sorry, why is, why is the mic so hot? Do we, do we know? Oh, the monitor. Got it. All right. We'll have to get into one of those. All right. Look at verses 11 through 13. <laughs> get rid of <laughs> Who told you that you were naked? This is God speaking. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. What's happening here? It's a huge, big blame game, right? Adam's blaming God. He's blaming the woman. The woman's blaming the serpent. It's just all kind of going everywhere. You see, the sin at the heart of this is such that when you rebel and you're caught, your tendency will be to blame and to blame shift. You see, sin makes us a blame shifter. It's always someone else's fault. Or it's always the fault of your circumstances. If only I was prettier, if only I was richer, if only I was smarter, if only I could be in that crowd, if my parents weren't such screw-ups, the whole of your life can become this big if-only. Not, and you're not able to take ownership of yourself and your sh- shortcomings. Let me ask you this. What would a body of people be like if they determined that they were the only ones to blame what would that be like? And they held themselves to that standard. Can you even imagine that? Like, I will not give myself the benefit of the doubt. Then I'll give everyone else around me the benefit of the doubt. I will assume it was my mistake and not yours. What would that look like? I think it would be humble. I think it would be approachable. I mean, you long for that, don't you? I know I do. Don't you love to be around people who don't have something to prove to you? What if that started with you? What if that started with you tonight? What a gift to this campus you would be. Have you ever thought of that? What kind of gift you would be if you owned your stuff? You know, my fear in some of this is that 90% of y'all would walk out of here thinking, well, I hope that the person I wind up with isn't like the guy that he's describing. Like a rebellious blame shifter who actually likes to do dirty, secretive things. Like... You're the person I'm talking to. Like, this is the point of the second point, right? <laughs> but that's how we all come to relationships. Have you, like, we beat this drum some, but have you realized yet that the biggest problem for you and your relationships is you? Are you aware of that? But we work so hard to convince, to nag, to make other people realize how they've wronged me. And all I'm saying here tonight at this point is own it. Own it. Own your stuff. It will be the best thing ever for your friendships, for your dating, for your marriage one day. And as I say this part, I just want to say, sorry for anyone here who doesn't yet think of themselves as a Christian. Um, I always assume there's, that y'all are here, uh, but I especially want to say that tonight to you because what I'm about to say is probably going to sound weird, but I need to talk about it because it is. And it's this, is that Christians have to stop blaming God for our poor decisions in dating. Stop telling your significant other that God is telling you to break up with them. Just stop it. Like, I've done that before. I know it's a lie. I know it. And y'all, that is so, it's so weird, and it's so confusing, especially because likely it's not the other person who you're dating, who should be a Christian, is not getting the same message from God, right? Like, it doesn't work if only one of you is getting the message and the other person is like, well, this is news to me. Like, that's not the way the Holy Spirit works. Y'all, the role of the Holy Spirit is not to give you Jedi mind powers or to keep you from walking through life without making mistakes. It's to show you your need for Jesus and then to apply Jesus' work to your heart. And sometimes, granted, he'll do a little more than that. 
But he's definitely not putting a neon sign uh, that only you can see over the cute boy in your gen ed English class that says, hunt the other guy, this is the one. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, that's just, it's not a thing. Usually, usually, the way that God works is to allow you, to allow you to be a person made in his image, which means that you're responsible for making decisions and living out the consequences of those decisions. Part of the glory of being a person made in the image of God is that your decisions matter. That's how it works for your major. That's how it works for your career one day, for your relationships. And that's glorious. Don't try to toss that glory aside. Or blame God when you misuse that glory for your own selfish ends. Just own the fact that you don't want to date this person anymore. That's all I'm saying. Stop trying to hide from the fact that when you break up with someone, you're going to have to be the bad guy. Like, even if you know it's the best thing in the long run, just say something like, I'm sorry, I don't think this is working. Give your reasons for why it's not working. Don't go on a break. Don't do that. <laughs> just say it's not working. Own your stuff. Apologize for what you need to apologize, and then you'll just move on. Just go about your business. Dating is a marriage, which means that you can break up as many times as you want to break up. We'll talk about this more later, but there's... Not the same sort of relational commitment in dating as there is in marriage where you're locked in for life. So if you need to break up with someone, then take advantage of your freedom and break up with them before it's too late, right? <laughs> but acknowledge the fact that it's you that's doing the breaking up. Don't you admire the people in your life the most who own their stuff and who have the courage to accept the consequences of those decisions? Don't you admire those people the most? Can you be one of those people? Can you own it, especially with your closest friends, especially with the people you're dating? Stop the blame game. All right, so that's blame shifting. Here's the third point. Here's the third point. Authority. Authority. What's the lie the serpent tells Eve? What's the lie the serpent tells Eve? That you will be like God, knowing good from evil. That you'll be the judge of reality. And how does this passage end? With a searching God demanding, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Do you hear what he's saying? This relationship was made so that I would be the one to interpret your reality to you. After all, I made you. I created you. I know you to your core, and you're listening to another voice. There's another authority other than me that's defining you. At the core of your relationships now and forever is the problem of authority. Who do you listen to? Who do you daily pay allegiance to in the affections of your heart? Who is really your God? Now, what do you connect to in order to say, this is what makes me, me? We listen way too much to the crowd when we found some measure of acceptance, don't we? Like some scene full of really cool people, some click, our giftedness, our family, our friends, our culture, some beloved professor, our feelings, our feelings, either good or bad, tend to rule us. Whatever it is, when we are our own authority, or we live according to a competing authority, then we distort the world. Our blaming, our rebellion, our hiding, it's all a distortion of this reality that we were made to live in. I mean, think about the perpetual state of outrage that seems to sometimes exist in campus life or on social media? Like, what's the source of so much of that? Like, I suggest that it's the assumption that if my sensibilities have been offended, then I can label you as an offender or an aggressor, even if it's for the slightest misstep. 
It's all these competing voices of authority trying to shout over each other of what's really acceptable and what's really not. And what the punishment for someone is when they cross that line, which is usually shame. For more on that, you should read a great article that's right now in the Atlantic uh, online edition. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's fascinating. It's really good reading. It takes about 15 minutes to read. It's good. Uh, regardless, some of you at this point are starting to realize how depressing it is to listen to your own heart and everything. One of the most ironic verses of the Bible is verse 7 here. It says, Then they ate the fruit of the tree, and their eyes were opened, and they both knew that they were naked. Their eyes are open to the reality of their sin and thus their shame. But because they become their own authority, they're blinded to the real authority on true life, on love, on wisdom, on relationship. And for the rest of the Bible, whenever it talks about someone who doesn't get it, it says they had eyes but they didn't see. They had ears but they didn't hear. That we inherit this from Adam and Eve. And we feel that too, don't we? Like people are telling me to follow my own heart. Follow my heart? What are you talking about? Which day do you want me to follow my heart on? It changes all the time, doesn't it? Your heart is a schizophrenic. Don't listen to it. It can't even decide who it likes in your class. Your heart on its own is a totally unreliable guide. Sometimes it can give you a clue as to what's right or what, where you need to go. I'm not saying it's totally, totally misguided. But on its own, it is not a reliable guide. So let me end with this. Have you been reading the story of the fall, or ever read the story of the fall, and wondered, you know, where's the gospel in this? Like, Christians say that, like, the whole Bible is just bursting with good news. And then there's this. Here, in the midst of all, all this messed up stuff, all this ruin, where's the good news in that? Like, Simon, these past two weeks, like, what have you been telling us? Like, have you felt like you've been chased by all these things? That I've been describing and wondering, like, where do I run from this ruin? Like, how do I not just close my eyes to it? When you get a chance, I want to say this. Read the rest of Genesis chapter 3. Read the rest of it. It's a minute. You'll see God laying out all of these curses, all the just consequences of sin. But in the midst of this curse, there's this promise to the serpent. The cause of so much ruin, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he's going to bruise your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. And then God takes off the fig leaves from Adam and Eve. He's totally ineffective coverings for them. And he kills an animal and he dresses them in its skin. Why is that there? Where is the gospel in this? This summer I saw the movie Mad Max. And if you haven't got a chance to check it out, let me just say, wow. It is awesome. For a movie that is essentially one long, three-hour car chase in the desert, it's an incredible movie. I mean, for real. And the turning point in the movie is Max and his companions have fled way, 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 way out in the desert. And they have been chased and shot at and nearly run over and nearly blown up. And in this desert place, they have a choice to make. They have a choice that they can either go deeper into the desert, but with the knowledge that there's only more desert. Or they can turn around and take the risk of facing down their enemies and heading back towards the only place they know that can sustain life. But to do that, they know they're going to have to follow Max back into the ruin and the chaos and the violence. And they're going to have to follow the one person who is not afraid. And beloved, this is what distinguishes a Christian. is those who follow the Son into the ruin and the chaos and the violence of relationships. And who say to Jesus, 
You define me for me. Though the truth is that there is no way through the ruin of our relationships to follow Jesus back into those relationships. To find true healing and true life, you've got to deal with those things and name the stuff that I've called out the last two weeks. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that is to follow a Jesus who is not afraid of sin and brokenness and the curse in Genesis 3. You know, he cures us of blaming or letting me feel safe that I can be wrong. He heals us of our rebellion by conquering our hearts with his love. Where's the gospel in Genesis 3? It's God's promise to the serpent that one day there's someone who's going to bruise your head. And yeah, you're going to bruise his heel. But he is not afraid of you. Already in Genesis, you have fallen humanity who try to cover themselves in this paper-thin leaf covering, and they're being covered with something else. You have the shedding of blood to cover sin. You have new clothes to cover our nakedness. And beloved, you, reading the Bible from here, can say that Jesus covers you with more than animal skins, but that God covers you with himself. So that when he looks at you, God doesn't see someone who's hiding, or blaming, or rebelling, or living in shame, but he sees a son or a daughter, someone in whom he delights. And the purpose of all of this, all of RUF, the church, this word here, the purpose of this is to release you into the life of another person, whether that's your family or a spouse one day or a neighbor. The gospel is intended to free you into that. Y'all, we're going to fall conference this weekend, but you should know that we don't do conferences to keep you busy and make you push your homework back a day. We do that to give you the space to help you ask yourself, has Jesus freed me to go into the life of another person? To give myself to these people? Or is someone who like, is hard to love? And if so, how can I do that? What's the best way for me to do that? Jesus knows that if you're okay with me, and you understand who you are on his terms, then you're empowered to serve and make you great for that. But to do that, you're going to have to follow him into the ruins. Into your neighbor, into a person that's hard to love, into a family that's broken or messed up or that sweeps things under the rug. You've got to follow him into those places. That's the essential message of Christianity. And as always, that's an invitation to you tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, that you don't leave us in Genesis 3. But Lord, that you tell a much longer story after that. God, that you guide us uh, into our relationships. Your relationships with our parents, your relationships with our roommates, your relationships with friend groups that are starting to form and that can feel hard. Lord, be with us in those things. Prove yourself to be Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, in the places where we most long for you, the places where we most need you, most need to feel your presence. God, show us your love, show us your the dignity that you made us for. God, show us how to love these other people. God, you, would you help us with that tonight? With your word, your spirit, with the very people you've put in this room. In your son's name I pray. Amen.